All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll pick right back up here in verse 17. We took the first 16 verses of chapter 11 a couple of weeks ago, and the title was Church Order in Worship Services. Today, the title for verses 17 through 34 is Church Order in Communion Services. Because Paul, as you remember, is addressing the Corinthian believers there in Corinth about some of their conduct and some of the things that were taking place within the church. And Sue, as the leader of that church, they were reaching out to him with a letter saying, hey, we've got some things we, we need you to kind of weigh in on and bring some uh, clarity to us so that we can bring some order into what's going on in the church because there was a lot of disorder going on in the church. And if you go back and look at chapter 1 in the first couple of church, uh, uh, chapters of 1 Corinthians, you will know there was a lot of chaos going on. So last week he addressed the, the, this role of, of uh, in keeping the theme, the, the thread through these the last few chapters is the Corinthians uh, where believers were coming to light of about the freedom they had in Christ. That they were getting away from the legalism. They were getting away from the, this, this rituals and structures and all these things they were raised up. Or as Gentiles, they didn't have any of that. They were worshiping in the pagan temples, remember? They were hanging out with the, the, in worshiping in prostitutes. That was well received in those churches. And so there was a lot of things going on there. And as you come to the freedom in Christ, and as you come to this freedom and understanding that you're not bound by legalism, but there's a, we're in grace and that there is freedom in this, there's a tendency sometimes for the pendulum to swing too far. That we will then find themselves saying, we can live however we want to live. What God's gonna, God has saved us. We can live like the world and it won't be a big deal. Oh, it's a big deal to God. Or in the church services, oh, we can do whatever we want to do. We can behave, act, and do whatever because we have freedom. There's no struggle. No, there's still order. God is a God of order. And so he has, and so Paul kind of highlighted more specifically to the women in this case because there obviously was a question because in the thing in the prior, they, they understood that the women have now this freedom. I don't have to wear a covering. I, I'm free in Christ. But Paul came along and said, well, there is freedom in Christ, but there is sometimes we have to have some boundaries because it's going to cause confusion within the culture that you live in. Now, it's hard for us to think, well, we don't wear coverings. Anyone in this culture look at a woman and say, why don't you have a covering? It wouldn't be a question, right? You can wear a covering. You don't have to have a hat. You could have a hat. You can have that veil. You don't have to have a veil. No one's going to question you in our culture. But remember, in that culture, if you, didn't have, if you were a married woman that didn't have a covering, you were sending a message that was causing some disorder because men would say, oh, you must be available. You must be single because that's what it meant. No, no, she's married. Well, if she's married, then in that culture, that means if you don't have your veil, that you don't have a covering, that you must be one of the prostitutes, or you're being a little on the adulterous side, and there was a question that would cause some confusion. Because remember, the pagan temple there, all the prostitutes would come down, and they would have shaved hair. He was saying, it's like shaving your head or, shutting it, or completely taking it off. You're representing something that's not who you are as a married woman. And your covering is your husband, your husband, you're married. So yes, you need to wear the you need to be conscious of that covering. 
So he was addressing those cultural things that was causing that balance between Christian liberty and what was order in the church at that point in time. Today we're going to look at the church order within communion services because we find that as he addressed back in chapter 1, there was division, there were some things going on in this church, and he needed to address it, especially when it came to coming together to eat a meal and to partake of the Lord's Supper. And this is where we're at today. So we're going to look at here, we look in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, <laughs> since you come together not for the better, but for the worst. Their intentions were not to gather together in Christ's name to be in unity as a church is what he's saying here. Now remember, if you go back in the beginning of chapter 11, he started off by saying, now I praise you, brethren. Right? He had things to praise him, but he says, okay, now I'm switching a little subjects here, and I want to make sure you understand what I'm about to say I'm not praising you for. This is not good. There's no Gouda here, and you got to change here your attitude and your behavior. And he says to them, for first of all, when, when, keyword, when you come together, that's not a question if you do or not. Of course we gather together as brothers and sisters. It's, it's a sad day today because a lot, of, a lot of Christians, a lot of brothers and sisters think it's optional to gather together in unity. They can just do their own thing from their home, watch the internet, don't need anybody else. There's no value. That's a sad day. That's, a, that's not a good. Because as Paul says here, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. He says, I believe that, because he knows in the letter that he received, there were some challenges. He addressed it in the very beginning of the letter in chapters 1 and through 3 there. All the way through, he's been addressing these things. So he says, I know that when you come together, that you're not doing it with the right heart. You're not doing it with the right attitude. And that it's causing, there's divisions, there's a split, there's a separation, there's a tearing that's happening within the body as you come together. For some reason, the arm doesn't want to be part of the body. It wants to do its own thing. There's a foot that seems to just want to go wild and kick in places they shouldn't be kicking. There happens, there seems to be uh, uh, eyes that are wanting to look other places. There's division. It's not coming together. And when you have division, when there is separation, what happens? There's a fall. There's a consequence in division, isn't there? I assure you, anyone who has had a body part go rogue on you, you understand the pain and the suffering that it can cause the whole body. So he says there's division among you. And in part, not completely, just a part of you. And I believe it. And it shouldn't be that way. He even says in verse 19, for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. 
So he says, not only do you have these divisions that are these cliques, these splits, these, these little subsets within the church that are kind of gathering together and they, they always look for each other and say, oh, he's like mine, he's like mine, we're all kind of like this little, this is like this, so we just going to do our own little thing within the church. That should never happen. All the electrical people shouldn't be hanging together just with electrical people. All the ones who are youth, who are like teenagers, the, 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 the young adults shouldn't be separated away from the body. That's why here, once you're in that 10 to 12 age, once you're hitting that puberty, once you're hearing that age of accountability, I believe, we want the men and those young men and women with the adults. We don't want them separated. We'll have the, they have their own time and other places we'll put together for reasons, but to gather together as a whole as one, we want them in communion with us. Right? Amen? Are you tracking with me here? I know it's very different from other churches, and that's just what we, you know, God has shown us very before we even started the church six years ago. God said, "This is this is what I this is my this is it this is the vision. Youth ministry as a whole will earn, learn at the appropriate ages, and we believe once you're hitting that puberty, once you're hitting that age accountability, you're a young adult. We want you around adults because we know you can learn, young ladies, from older women. That's scriptural." Young men, we want you around older men. Why? Because it's scriptural, because we want them to teach you things. Because we want you to learn. Godly ways. Godly examples. I thank God today that God showed Kathleen and I that from the very beginning, get our girls around godly people, godly adults, so that God can use them in the lives of those girls. And they can watch the examples and see and to grow. And so they have our example, but they also have other godly examples. So that's why we see, but there's factions. There's this, these small little dissenting groups that are forming that's actually like a cancer, he's saying. These factions are small, they're just part, and they're causing because they want to go. In my, in my experience... Of many years in the ministry, I find those factions are usually because they're looking for what they want to do it their way and how they want to do it, and they want control and leadership control. And those are never good. It's one, if a few cells go rogue and they want to take control, what does cancer cells do to the other healthy cells? Hello? When there's a sick sheep among you, what does sick sheep do to a healthy sheep? Hello? If there is a wolf among you, what do you think? They're here to share the food meal with you and have come to the table with the right horn? Again? Or are they looking just for an opportunity to devour you? Hello? That is why he says there cannot be factions. There can't be small little groups hanging out and gossiping. Because it, that is just going to be gossiping and all that is sin. And it's sad today to see that people who gather together, even if it's just a few, and you talk about something against a, the body of the body of believers, the body of Christ, that is sin. And most people don't even see it as sin. They think they're just getting together because they're just ironing, working it out. And how are we going to approach? Now you're sinning. Repent. Because factions 
And now divisions will only hurt the body. It doesn't help the body, even though you think you've convinced yourself you're helping the body. Don't be fooled by the enemy. And so Paul is making it very clear to him, as you're coming together, I do not praise you at all in what your guys are doing. There's a division. There's factions going among you. And you should be one. I don't care about your profession when you come in the doors. I don't care what your age is and the color of your skin or any of these things that the world and the flesh thinks about. We as brothers and sisters are one. We come together as one body, one Christ. We come to the table as one. We don't sit there and say, oh, you group do your faction, you know, your little faction go over and take communion somewhere else. And your little faction come over here and you get, no, that, doesn't, that should never happen. It will never happen here. Why? Because God wants unity. A bond of his love and his grace and his mercy. If it's not, then God has called me, as we learned last week, to be in a position of authority to cut that out. And I will. Because it's not good for the sake of the whole flock of sheep. Amen? You're with me. We're all tracking with me on that. See, I don't, you know, if you've been around me long enough, I don't sweet talk it and sugarcoat it and soft it out here, okay? So for those who are having a tough time with this, it's okay. The Lord will strengthen you. <laughs> we'll get you through it. You're okay. So therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper. Ahead of others, and one in hungry, and another is drunk. And Paul responds, what? Are you kidding me? You're telling me, you're, you're saying you're gathering together, but you're not coming really to come and take the Lord's Supper as one body, as a body of believers, of men and women who love each other, and we're coming to Christ together in unity and truth and in spirit. No, 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 no. You're actually going and taking your supper and eating your supper way before anybody else. You're not even waiting for anybody. This is beyond just a courtesy and, and etiquette. This is not what he's talking about. We're talking a mindset that says we're coming together. We're all bringing our agape feast, what they did, and they usually had agape feast and Lord's Supper together, Right? Jesus had his, him and his disciples in the upper room. What are they doing? Where they were just having a potluck? No, no, no. They were having a agape feast with communion, with the Lord's Supper. That's what he introduced. And that's why we do that. As we do, as we come together. At Koinonia nights, the first, the first uh, Sunday of each night, uh, or each month, we will have those. We're going to, this scripture just spoke to me so loud and clear that on Koinonia, we bring our food and we, we share and, and some people bring it. There's no obligation to do it. You're free to give or come and bring it or free not to bring anything, but you still get to come to partake. It's freedom in this. We're just, the Lord is really showing me, we're going to start doing communion those nights. Yes, we do communion on Sunday. There's nothing stopping us doing communion on Sunday night too on that same day. We'll let the Lord and the Spirit of God move and we'll do those things. But what was happening is there was this rich group within the church here in Corinth. And there were some poor people in Corinth. 
And as they gathered together, the rich and the poor, the rich were going off, going crazy a little bit. They were bringing because they had the money. They had the resources to bring the food. The poor did not. So when they gathered together, there was not a requirement to check at the door if you have a, some, something in your hands for the potluck. And that will never happen. You are free to come with or without anything in hand. Matter of fact, the church supplies Koinonia night just so that you are free to come, that you don't have to think about buying or making or doing anything. You go home, you get your kids settled in and everything, and they come back that evening. But I know God uses many of you and has blessed you with the ability to cook really well. Calvary Chapel, we're Calvary Chapel, so we just love food flowing around this place. Jesus ate all the time. You know that, right? So this is totally scriptural. I mean, you, have to, you have to be jiggy with me here because it is true. Jesus loved to eat. He ate with sinners. He ate with his brothers and sisters. He went and he used that as a means to be able to, to relate and to, work and to be able to spend time with people, to minister to them. And so we see here, Paul is saying, hey, you guys are gathering. You come into one place, but you are literally in your mind separated from the rest of the group, of the rest of the, your brothers and sisters. You're coming in with the food, and because you brought the food, you have this magnitude. I'm going to get my plate, heap it up. I'm going to pig out. This is going to be great. And I'm going to go over here with our little group, and we're going to have our little fellowship every Sunday with just the three or four, five, six people, and no one else will talk to. Mm, that's never good. Mm-mm. No, no, not good. We should all know every part of the body. You should get to know and introduce and allow God to get to know you and, uh, and as brothers and sisters. And here's the poor. Gets up there and there's no more food. They're starving. So they're, not, they're coming in here. He says right in verse 21, right? You take your own supper ahead of others and the one is hungry and another is drunk. Meaning you're so hungry when you come in, you can't even wait for everybody else to partake at the same time. That's why when we do communion, we wait to partake with the elements, the symbols together. We don't hand it out and you just do it yourself. We do it together. When we have a supper, we wait What's the rules here at Calvary Chapel North Country? Ladies first, right? We know why. Because we don't want the pigs, I mean the men, to go first because there won't be any more food left for the ladies. You know what I'm saying? We've got some really healthy, young military guys who can eat. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Which means we have to need more food, that's all. It's all good, though. It's all good. So we... We, we have to be a mindset. It's an attitude, is it not? Even in your own home, men, do you, do you let the ladies sit down? And do you let the ladies make sure that they are, you know, part of that meal together? Or men, do you just sit down and say, woman or mom, 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 where's the food, mom? You know, no, let, the, let her mom sit. You serve her the plate. Let her start eating first here. Because we want to get that in our minds that God wants unity. So here they are, hungry, and they got the, they go heaping up their plates, and they're getting drunk. Why? Because they hadn't shifted from their old life into the new life in Christ. Remember in the pagan temple, that was one big party, man. 
There is drinking was free-flowing in their worship services. They're just eating and gluttony. All those things were taking place. If sexual sin was taking place, anything that fed the flesh, it was wide open in those temples. Now they're in Christ. They're making the shift. They've got to grow and mature in their, their relationship with Christ. They've got to learn. So Paul is saying, hey, if you're hungry here, he says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? If you're really hungry, eat before you come. Or eat a partial meal. Get something so you're not so starving when you get there with the potluck, you know, the, the agape feast. Or do you despise the church of God? Because your behavior is really showing that you really kind of despise the church of God. The body of Christ, you really kind of despise him if you're acting like this. You're really disrespecting the body, your brothers and sisters, when you do this. And shame those who have nothing. You're sitting there going, I brought the food. I got the money. I got the food. I'm going to eat first. You're poor. You're last. You get the scrap. That is shameful. You're shaming the people who can't afford this. That should not be. People come together as one. We partake. God uses the resources that he has blessed you with for the body as a whole. Are you with me on that, my brothers and sisters? Just because God has blessed you with a promotion or blessed you with additional money and a percentage increase every year, not everyone else has that blessing. That's not to hoard it for yourself on earth. What does he say? It's for the treasures in heaven. How do you do that? By reaching out and serving those in the body and those who are outside the body who are in need. And that's when he says, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. So he said it twice. So anytime you see the scripture, there's a repeat of something. You know you better take note. You better take note. You better highlight it, underline it. I don't know if you color code it in your Bible, but make sure you understand twice. He says, I do not praise you in that attitude and that behavior when it comes together, when you come together as brothers and sisters as one church. It's unacceptable. But it was very common in those days in Corinth. They were having a difficult time making that cultural shift because it was outside of the church it was very natural for the world to say the upper class has extra benefits compared to the poorer class. Well, they're upper class. they got money. Of course they get to do those things. Of course they get privileges. Of course they... But in the church, that is not the way it works. A multimillionaire can walk into this place. They're a brother or a sister just like you. Are you with me? It's as simple as I can put it to you. Let the Spirit of God work whatever he needs to work in your life. Make that shift. If there needs to be repentance, repent. That means a change of mind in this, what I'm just talking to you about. Make the shift. Because it pleases God. Because we already said, if you don't, what happens? He says, do you think I'm going to praise you? Mm -mm. God already says, speaking through Paul, I will not praise you for that. Then he continues in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. 
So we see here how the conduct is. Jesus himself is going to, to be our example that Paul is going to show. He says, Paul says, I received from the Lord. I received it directly, or he received it through the other apostles, however he received, but he received from the source himself, the Lord, that which I also delivered to you. Meaning, I have, I'm writing this right now, but this is not the first time you've heard me say this to you all. I've taught this to you when I was with you five years ago and spent that time with you. I taught this to you, and I'm going to reemphasize this to you so repetition, maybe it will kind of sink in and you'll grow and mature for what I'm trying to tell you here. He says, remember the Lord Jesus on the same night he was about to be betrayed. He had not gone to the cross yet, remember. Make that sure that's clear in your Bibles that he has not gone to the cross yet. But Jesus says, as they were, as they were lounging, remember the tables were not like our tables. They were on the, on the floor. They laid on the floor, one arm on the left-hand side, leaning on some pillows and using or reaching out onto the table. And, and they leaned around, and they, around the tables while they were kind of relaxing. And if you remember, they double-dipped. <laughs> they double-dipped because that was unity. They were sharing a meal together. I call it noshing. I love noshing. But they were coming together, and he, Jesus took the bread. He broke it to make a symbol or an example, a beautiful example for them to always remember what was going to happen to Jesus himself of being broken and so he continues here, he says, and when, again, another word there, key word to circle, when he had given thanks, we are to give thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this for yourself? Do this for ritual? No, do this in remembrance of me. It's all about who? Jesus. Say that again. It's all about Jesus. Thank you. Because there's a tendency in the church here in Corinth that it was all about them and not about the Lord's Supper, the communion service coming and it's all keeping the focus on Jesus. It was about their meals and about their little cliques and about their th ways and doing it their way and how they wanted it because that's the way it's going to be in their minds. No, 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 no. Paul is saying and using Jesus says, remember they got together they, in the upper room, they had supper, and then he took the bread and he said what? He said, he broke it and said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Was it his body that he took and broke to hand out and share? You got a finger, you got a finger. Does it? No, no. Because it wasn't his body. It wasn't his literal body. These were symbols to represent what would be taking place and happening to his body on the cross. In the same manner, verse 25, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of 
me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, Paul didn't make this up. He didn't come up as some women thing to, to try to make it clever to come with some analogies and stuff and make it, it's, oh, look how smart I am and how clever. He says, no, no, this is what the Lord has put in place for you and me. Now, the Lord's Supper is often called the term Eucharist. In the Greek phrase, it means giving thanks. So as we come to the table, we give thanks. To who? To Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for your body to be broken for me. Thank you for your blood to be shed for me. We give thanks when we take communion. Because he was willing to be broken. And Paul puts the emphasis here remembering Jesus. Because they were celebrating, if you remember, the Passover meal. See, see the, the, what we have to remember is Jesus wanted to bring them back to what he was already teaching. That God had already shared in that culture. An understanding of biblical ways. He understood, he wanted to make sure that the Jewish traditions and the celebration that was taking place in Israel. And the deliverance from Egypt and bringing them into the promised land began there in Exodus. He's saying, we're going to bring that picture into real life of what I'm about to do. Not into a new land, but into a heavenly land. I'm going to give you that promised land in heaven where I am going to prepare a place for you. And we're going to get into that down the road. But he was leading all of this back to remember me and what I'm going about to do. And he took these, these, these common elements of bread and this, 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 this wine and he took it and he says... I'm going, to re- I'm going to make sure you remember this Passover celebration because these are going to be pictures in your mind and reminders that you as Israelites were delivered from Egypt, but you are also going to remember this because when I go to the cross, you are going to remember that I have delivered you from your sin. And I don't want you to ever forget what I have done for you. This is my body. We're called to remember Jesus' broken body for you. That Passover meal would feature this unleavened bread made without yeast because remember as they had to flee Egypt, they didn't have time for the bread to rise. They took the dough and they put it on the the heat on those those grates and when they flipped it really quick to make that that bread to get out of out of town it left what those holes in it they left those the scar marks from the grades when you put a grilling you know you flip the burger you see the grade marks of the burns down through the that burger it's the same thing for the unleavened bread they put it on the fire and when you lift it you could see the stripes <coughs> that would remind you of the stripes that Jesus took on his back for you. The piercing of the bread, little holes are going to remind you of the piercing of the spear in his side, of the 
pouring out of his blood for you and I. And those scorch marks, those stripes, those holes, those piercing marks that we will see when we take that bread and drink that cup will remind us. It's a remembrance of me, Jesus. And it should bring us to a brokenness. This should not be, ever be a ritual. And he's also bringing to light that his, this cup, as he says here, is a new covenant. Jesus established a new covenant, sealed with his blood, even with the old covenant was sealed with the blood of an animal. We see in Exodus 24, 8, it will be his blood. His, his the, the lamb of God who will pour out his blood, his shed blood for the forgiveness of the, this world. If you even go back and read Jeremiah, this new covenant was all about was this transformation that was supposed to take place in the hearts and the minds of the people. That inner transformation, that cleansing us from this all sin. It says in Jeremiah 31, 34, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Did you know that? That once you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your sin is gone. He doesn't remember no more. But he also puts God's word in, in his will in us when we become put our faith in him. His will and his, his word is placed in us, Jeremiah 31, 33. He says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. When you're saved, you want to know what the will of God is. He has put it on your heart. He's going to put his will on this, your heart. There's no question there. He's going to put his word in your mind as he brings the word to God. As we study the word, he's putting it in your mind so he will use that to help you in your life. And in Jeremiah 31, 33, it says it's all about a new and a close relationship with God. It says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Amen? Are you tricking, you're tracking with me here? Because that is so important to go back and just meditate on those three verses. Do you believe it? Do you know it? Are you willing to share it with someone who's lost and doesn't know it? Sharing the hope that you and I have in Christ. Because we certainly don't put our hope in our treasures on earth. Our bank accounts, our jobs, our health. Because if that's where you put your trust, oh, my, my brother and sister, you and I must talk. <laughs> or stay really close because it's a matter of time. Those things will go away and you're going to be without nothing. Right? And then you go, oh, I trusted in the wrong things. That's right. We want you to trust in him, not the things. Because of what Jesus did in the cross, we can have this new covenant relationship with God. But it's so sad that many of us 
live our Christian life like there has been no inner transformation that took place. We still struggle with the old things. We still want to live like the world. We still want to adopt and fit in and act like the world. That should not be happening as a, uh, as a Christian. If you're one of his, his children, that should not be. We should be like our father. Not like the world. Not like your best friend. Jesus should be the best friend. He calls, us, calls you friend. That inner transformation should be taking place in your life because of Jesus went to the cross and has created that new covenant relationship with you and I. Because if there's no cleansing of sin in your, in your life, if there's no, his word is not dominating, you're not interested and you're not wanting to learn and understand and grow and nurture on his word. And you don't really care about his will versus you, I want your will, God. Those conversations in your head that you're having secretly should not be, if you've been a Christian for a while, those, those things should dominate, his, his will should be dominating in your mind. Your sins that you dealt with, they, shouldn't, they should not, they shouldn't, trust me, they're not habitual. They're, you shouldn't even be really struggling with those as very often. I mean, the enemy sometimes throws them at you, fiery darts, but there's a difference between that and living out that sin still. Are you tracking with me here? This could be a, this could be a, a new you. And you should have this close relationship with God. That's his desire for you. Anytime you use your football moment there and give him a stiff arm on some subjects, please don't. When he says, I've, I've got a new, I got a relationship with you, Corey, and there's this part of your life right now that needs to change. I've been saving it, the best for last. We're going to the basement of your life. We're going to the closet, man. And if you're in your mind, I sit there and go, not yet. Woo, no Gouda, all right? That's not good, and we're going to see why. You ready? We're going to see it in the verses here. He says, therefore... Whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You're accountable. You're accountable to what you're willing to do in regards to that new relationship with Christ. Paul is saying to them, hey, brothers and sisters, if you're coming to the table and you're going to partake and, and eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, do it in the right way, with the right attitude. You're coming to worship him. You're coming to just be broken in front of him. You want nothing holding back in that relationship. So when we come, we need to examine ourselves. God, am I stiff-arming you on anything in my life right now? Please bring it to memory, because I want to confess it, repent it, and lay it at your feet. 
because I want that closeness with you. I want that, 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 just a, that, that such a closeness, that love, that, that experience of, of you just filling my life afresh. But so many people come out of ritual and out of routine. It's some, like it's some magic pill that they take and a magic potion and somehow, you know, I'll get through another week. <laughs> That's not how God works here. But Paul warns them, make sure you come to the table that you're not doing it in an unworthy manner. Because as we repent, as we reveal, as we're open and honest with God, he knows all things. He sees all things. He's, he's everywhere. It's, listen, you're, you're not hiding anything or being able to somehow keep secrets from him. But when you do repent, but when you do change your mind about certain things and line them up with the scripture, our sin should drive us to our Savior, not away from our Savior. It would cause you just to just run to him. And because you, you know he's just going to be with open arms to receive you. Don't let the enemy say, oh, because you're struggling with this, you can't come to the table. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying for, verse 29, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. You're coming to the table not concerning at all what Jesus did on the cross. You're coming to the table because you want what you want and somehow get around and get away with something. But no, 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 you come. Come in a worthy manner, not an unworthy manner, because it will bring judgment. What, what kind of judgment? Well, he, Paul makes it clear. He says, for this reason, many are weak, sick among you, and many sleep or are dead. So there is consequences. That's pretty, have you heard that taught before? Have you read this verse where you know that if you come and you are going to partake and you're coming in an unworthy manner with you don't care about Jesus' body on the cross or what he's done, but you're still going to come and to partake and act like God brings about weakness in your life. That's his judgment. He'll bring judgment to you. He'll cause you to become weak. He will, can also cause you to become sick. But he also can take your life. Now, it doesn't say he took your salvation. But in, for some reason, he says, he's looking at your life, and he says, <coughs> the way you're living your life, and you're saying you're a Christian, you're coming to the table, and everyone's watching your life, but you're doing it in such an unholy manner, as ungrateful, uncharacteristic of anything you should be coming to the table with, to the table and to receive I'm going to get your attention. He says, I'm going to sit there. and I, What does it say? Verse 31. For if we would not judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the, with the world. So he's saying to you, I'm whispering in your ear constantly. You need to change. You need to change. You need to change. 
You need to change the way you're thinking about it. I've given you the scripture. I brought your brother and sister to you, and they, they said something in your life, and you went, ooh, I heard that again. I've read something. Oh, there goes a pastor saying it again. God constantly is whispering in the still, small voice to you throughout your day, through the music. He goes all kinds of ways, right? Speaks to you through his nature, his creation. But at some point, we see in the scripture, he says, if you're not willing to judge yourself, examine yourself and judge yourself, oh, I'm, I'm a wicked man. Oh, I need to change. He says, then I'm going to have to chasten you. Now, this is not like a judge to a criminal. Lock him up, throw the key away, forget about the man for life. Give him a life sentence. That's not what he's saying here. His heart is saying, like a father to a child, son, you're just completely being disobedient, and you're going to need to get chastened. You're not following instructions or direction. You're not, your attitude and your behavior is not lined up with family. <laughs> The scripture says this, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you are completely going against that. That means you're going to be chastened by me as a father. Are you with me? So he says here, if we come in an unholy manner, that he is going to be left with having to chasten us so that we're not condemned with the Lord. He loves you so much that he's not going to let you run astray. And and I, this came to my mind again. Parents, hear me. If your heavenly father, your Lord, is not going to let you have a wrong attitude and wrong behaviors when it comes to scripturally bound, right? He's going to chasten you. He's going to remind you and remind you and try to get your attention through different ways. But eventually, it could bring to you a weakness. It can bring to you sickness. It could actually bring you to death because, and we'll talk about this a little bit here, but let me make this connection here as a parent. Does your Heavenly Father just let you stray and go do whatever you want to do as a sheep? No, say no. So then why as parents today... Why do parents today say the children will have to figure life out on their own and just let them go astray and figure out life as they go and not chasten them and discipline them when their attitude and their behavior is not lined up with the scripture? Hello? It grieves us to not to see what's happening with our youth today. Not here at this church. You guys are doing it perfectly according to the scriptures. I know that. I'm talking about the uh, people outside the church. That they let their kids just live a life however they want to live, even though it goes against the scriptures. It's going to lead your children to weakness sickness, and in death. Why would any loving parent 
knowing they just heard that out of my mouth, continue to let their kids do whatever they want to do without being chastened. Of course that doesn't happen here. But if you know someone who needs counseling outside of this church, you can always bring them with you and help. We can, or you just open the scripture. You've been taught. You don't have to bring them here. You've been taught. Now you just now share with those around you. Help those parents who are coming to you and crying because their kids have gone astray. Help them. That's what God's called us to do, right? Amen? Because there is going to be correction. Now, why would be death? Why would death? Okay, is it, if, if you're not doing something right and you're not coming to the table right, you have your attitude, and, and if I see someone weak or sick or death, is that because they're living in sin? No, that's not true. So don't go there either. But for some reason, God is looking at his children and he says, you're doing things in an unworthy way. I've tried to correct you. I'm chastening you. But for the sake of the testimony of Christ, for the sake of the body of Christ, in his wisdom, he chooses, I better bring them home with me now before it gets worse. And he'll take their life and bring them home. Because leaving them in this world is not good for them. And because I, he loves you so much, and you might be in an unworthy manner or some way not pleasing God, he'll bring you home because it will be better for him to bring you home as a child than to leave you wandering and being left could be condemned like the world. Are you tracking with me? So don't, don't go legalistic on me and say, oh, you're sick. You must have something in your life that's not right. You're weak. Oh, what are you doing in your life? Remember, when we come to the table, it's not examining anybody else in this room. The examination is who? Me. So repent. If you're sitting there going, did he take it? Did he take it? Did she take it? Oh, there must be something in her life. She didn't take communion. Oh, that must not be a believer over there. Repent. We're all guilty of that at one point in our walk in Christ, huh? The examination is your life. Let God work with your children. Let God work with your spouse. Let God work with the, your brother, sister to the left or to the right of you. The examination is you. Make sure you are doing it in a worthy manner that's pleasing to the Lord. And as we take a look at this, we can hear and we'll finish up here. He says, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. You got a house there. Go get some food before you come here. You don't get, you know, cause some problems and eat ahead of and eat too much food before anyone else can get anything. Lest you come together for judgment and the rest and, and the rest I will set in order when I come. So he ends this portion of that letter right there. and says, okay, just for the sake of others, to keep church order in the time of communion services, bring the food if you can. If you can't, don't bring the food. You don't have to bring the food. There is no law. Okay? There's no law. 
that you have to bring something. But when, not if, when he wants you to come together as one church, one body, to come and share in a meal, and then we come to the table, the supper, the Lord's table, the communion table, make sure your attitude, your, 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 your reason for coming is in the right heart. One of unity, not division. One of oneness because we're in one blood. We're one family. We're all children of God. You're not a, fract a, 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 a fraction in some special group. We're a family, one family. Yes, we're some crazy uncles. I understand that. I can be crazy at times. But we still love the uncle, I hope. But when you come to the table, we're going to come to do it in oneness with our focus on Christ. And when we do that, he ends up, he says, and the rest I want to tell you, let's save that. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think it falls as, this is probably heavy duty because I just told you, I just rebuked you in the letter. So I'm going to hold the rest of this when I deal with the rest. Because there was obviously more to the story that was going on in that church. You know what I'm saying? Because if you go back in chapter 1, like I said, he rebuked them on many, many, many facets. He said, I'll deal with the rest of that. But right now, I'm just letting you know how important it is that we come to the table. Now, what's interesting, there's so many views when we come to the table, what the bread and the juice that we use when we do our communion services. Now, you historically, you know, or even currently, that even in Matthew 26, 29, Jesus spoke of his longing expectation for the day when he would take communion with his people in heaven. Do you remember that? He says, I'm going to leave here, but I can't wait to have that meal with you in heaven. I can't wait. But until then, partake and remember me, right? In anticipation of the heavenly hour. Because when we come to the table, we not only look behind what Jesus did, not only do we look internally to where, where our attitude is and then we take it in a worthy manner, but we also, when we come to the table, we look forward to the day of having the Lord's Supper with the Lord himself in person. So when we come to the table, those are the th three things you're, uh, you're meditating on. But you're also meditating on the fact that of who he is in remembrance of me. Yes, you went to the cross for me, Jesus. You were broken for me, so I did not have to be broken literally on a cross. Your blood was spilled for the covering of my sin, so that it wasn't me that had to pay for my sin. But... Uh, I'm not living by the law, but I'm living by your grace and your love and your, your long-suffering and your passion for me. These are the things we ponder on as we worship him as we come to the table. Now, it was interesting in the, one of the outreaches, we had a gentleman that came who had a Roman Catholic church background. And we had a discussion about their view of what the bread in the cup was. And they are so, he was such a committed 
believer that 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 bread and that cup was literally the body and the blood of Jesus. They call it the transubstantiation. A long word that means they believe in that faith that when they come to partake, they're literally eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus. Now Luther, if you remember historically, had a problem with that, and we do too. And they, he went, but he didn't go far from that teaching, and they call it now in a fancy word, Martin Luther calls it, refers to it as consubstantiation, which means it's not the literal body and a literal blood, but it's somehow, some way, it's spiritually, it is his body and his blood. It's more than a symbol. Then you have John Calvin who taught that Jesus' presence in the bread and wine was real, but only spiritually, not physical. But one of the things I want to make sure you understand how we view it here is that we believe the cracker that you take is a cracker. And the juice that you will drink is juice. It's, it's juice. It's not wine. It's juice. That these are symbols and, in, and very important symbols for you and I because Jesus said he used those two symbols to help us to remember who? Say Jesus. So we take them as a remembrance of his brokenness. of his willing to to use his blood to be the sacrifice for our sins. And they're symbols to help us to remember him. That not, you're not literally taking his body and blood. And why do I say that? And I didn't get a chance because the gentleman had to leave and I, oh, I wanted to spend more time with him uh, to help him bring around. And I tried, but he just, mm, he was firm. But let me ask you a question. Out of Jesus' mouth directly, when he says, I am the vine, at any point, do we know that he was a vine? Literally a vine? No? When he says, I am the door, do you think that he had some brass nickel, you know, brass fixtures or nickeled or gold-plated hinges? No, he wasn't a door. These were analogies or figures of speeches to help bring a picture for you and I to help us to understand the action that he wanted you and I to remember and to do. Are you with me? So if you love your brothers and sisters, if you know a Roman Catholic who loves Jesus and has put their faith in Jesus, love them, help them in that, if the Lord leads. But understand these are symbols that we come to the table. Because even Paul in verse 26 says, take this bread. Did he say? Remember, Jesus has already died on the cross, right? Are you with me? So Paul is writing this saying, did Paul say in verse 26, take Jesus' body. Take his blood. Did he say that? No. Why? Because it's not literally Jesus' body and literally his blood. They were symbols to use to bring to remembrance of what Jesus did for you and I on the cross.